you know, the last time I was up here. Um, but starting off kind of just to put us in a mindset, I think, of how we can approach Chronicles is um, if you think of like of when you're at a wedding or something and they have the slideshow of pictures and it's not when they're showing that slideshow, it's not when you're looking at it, it's not just to see like a cute picture of X when they're a baby, but they kind of, when you're putting together those slideshows, you're kind of specifically choosing pictures to show different, there's usually activities or different things that you've done in your life. So whatever you have the five-year-old girl riding the horse and then you've got them um, going to this vacation and then uh, graduating from this school. So you kind of learn more than just what they look like. You actually learn about that person or what they've done in their life um, leading up to it. And so if that's like what those slideshows are, I think that's kind of what Chronicles is like in that we're not just learning the history of Israel, but it's kind of a selective, purposeful snapshot of the history of Israel. And the writer or the chronicler who kind of gathered all in the, all this information has a specific point in mind as he's going through it. Um, so this was written right after the exile, whereas Kings was written during the exile. And so a lot of this overlaps with Kings and with Samuel, but it was written um, later than that. So that's kind of, it's a retelling of the history of Israel and helping them understand who they are, where they've come from, now that the exile's over. So it's kind of this new group of people. Um, Some of them may have never been in exile. I don't know exactly when it was written, but some of them may have never been in exile, and they're just like, I was born in Israel after all this. Like, what's going on? What do I do? Um, So that's where we're going to go. I'll open us in prayer, and then we will jump into it. Father, we come together uh, this morning to learn about you, to learn about the history of your people, and to learn about your goodness towards them. We pray for um, open hearts and open minds as we approach you this morning. Uh, We pray for uh, peace and joy as we learn about who you are. pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so, yeah, Chronicles, we're going to do the whole thing like Samuel, like Kings. It was originally one book. It wasn't split up into two sections or two parts. It was That was done later, so we're going to be looking at it as one piece. Um, the Hebrew name for the book translates to the events of the days, so that just means this is kind of what was going on. It's a historical record. Um, Jerome, who was one of the early church fathers, he actually is the one who called it the Chronicle, and that kind of just stuck. Um, So he titled the book um, sometime after the Bible was done being written. Um, We don't know exactly who the Chronicler was. Some suggest it's Ezra, who we're going to be looking at next time. He was a priest after the exile was over, and next time I teach we're going to be looking at um, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, But regardless of who the author was, I think the timing of when it was written is most important. So if you guys want to just open Chronicles and flip over to chapter 9, and we see, and I'll actually just read it. Um, So starting in verse 1, it says, So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon, because of their breach of faith. Now, 
the first to dwell again in their possessions in the cities of Israel were the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. So, this is clearly happening after the exile was over. So we see that he's saying that these people are the first ones to come back. So we know where we're at. We know that we're after the exile. Um, and this is kind of, yeah, the key to appreciating the message. Um, so the history of Israel was one of both hope and tragedy. There was hope in God's promise that one of David's sons would rule forever. And then the tragedy was that king after king after king failed to live up to God's righteousness. So tragedy seems to have won. The northern Israel was exiled in 722. They were defeated by Assyria, and they never really returned. There was never this grand Israel coming back um, coming back to their land. And then Judah, the southern kingdom, was defeated by Babylon. The temple, Jerusalem, were destroyed. Um, but the hope for them wasn't completely crushed, and there was a remnant preserved in Babylon, and David's line survived, as we see at the end of the book of Kings, through Je- King Jeho- Jehoiakim. Um, and then in Ezra and Nehemiah, they kind of show us what happened when the people do come back, and they start to rebuild the temple and the walls. Um, so kind of, yeah, I guess a little bit of discussion. What? How can we, um, I don't know, compare ourselves or how do how are we similar or dissimilar from the Jews at this at this time how can we be thinking of what what does this have to do with us I guess and just thinking of like yeah setting time frame all knowledge anything really morning What do you guys think? Similarities, difference? Are there is their situation related to ours at all? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, just they're kind of, I think we can totally get it. Just it's the, they know that there's promises, but now they're in this place and it doesn't seem like they're working or they're fulfilled. So they're in this weird in-between. God has promised a king. He's promised that it would come from the line of David. It's been almost a thousand years. Like what's going on? We don't, it seems like, yeah, they're just unsure, and I think it's just, yeah, it's the already but not yet. It's like, um, similarly, we were promised that Jesus is going to come again, that somehow it's like sin has been defeated on the cross, right? It's like, it's done, but what do we, like, it still seems, it's a little bit confusing. There's still sin, so how is it defeated? Or it's just like, there's some things that we have to wrestle with, and there's this weird tension of God has promised it, it was fulfilled, but somehow it's not fulfilled. So what do we do with that? And I think 
that is kind of what these people were thinking in in Chronicles of like, wait, so we're back in the kingdom. We've got our king. We've got our temple, but it just doesn't really seem right. So why? Like, what's going on here? And I think Chronicles is written to those people. He's he's writing um, with those people in mind saying like, listen, like, and he's just going to be reiterating um, what the promises are and kind of what they're supposed to do. How do they have hope? with those realities in mind. Um, so, yeah, that's what we're getting. I think, yeah, Chronicles has a much different theological purpose than Kings or Second Samuel. Like I said, it retells a lot of the same time period, a lot of the same history, but with a much different purpose. Um, and his aim is what I would say is that now that the exile is over, so kings, if you probably don't remember, we talked about that the purpose of kings, or one of the main goals was to show that this exile was not God abandoning them, but it was because they had disobeyed God's covenant. They had not held to the covenant. So again and again, that's just reiterated throughout the book of Kings. Um, Chronicles, I would say that his aim is more to remind the people that God still has a future for him, that they still haven't God hasn't forgotten them, that God is still, so it's a lot more hopeful. There's actually a lot, um, there's prominent stories that are in Kings that this author leaves out, and there's content in here that the Kings does not have. Um, So it's about, yeah, what is the hope now that they're back? Because it it would have been super easy to be hopeless in this situation. Um, So, yeah, as I said, we'll... Things weren't what they wanted. Um, even as we were looking at Daniel, the last time I talked, the 70 years are over, as Daniel chapter 9 was predicting. Um, but they were still waiting for the Messiah, the chosen one. Um, they're still not enjoying all of the covenant promises. So we're going to look Chronicles in kind of three different sections. The first section, we're just going to look at um, chapters 1 through 9. And this is where most people probably give up. Um, because the first nine chapters, so if you're like doing a, whatever, read through a year, and you have three straight days of reading names, it would be easy to give up. So yeah, the first nine chapters are genealogy. Um, we'll even look at, just open to the very first page, and it starts with Adam. So it says, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So if you even like kind of drifted down and took some time this afternoon to even like just scan these names um, and all nine chapters, you'll see kind of that the focus on them. And I don't think we'd be surprised to learn that the focus is specifically on the kings that are leading towards Jesus. So it's kind of showing this line and... um, how eventually it's going to go through David and then all of his sons to Jesus. So the the chronicler is showing that this line is still intact all the way from Adam to the present day. There's somebody there. And then even as we open up uh, the New Testament in Matthew, it kind of reiterates that. And it's like this is all coming, um, starting from these first nine chapters of Chronicles, uh, tracing it through that ne- nothing was ever out of the ordinary, out of plan, out of God's plan. Like we can trace it all the way through that God had a plan um, for this whole thing, and so, and we see that even if we do, even if we were to go through this genealogy, like a lot of the, um, the secondary or the the brothers, so say Ishmael or, um, 
or a couple of the other ones. Who did we have? Shem. Well, no, Shem is the one, but like Japheth, there's a, basically a short chronology or a short genealogy of these people, but then it it just says like it goes for just maybe a generation and then it jumps back to the line. So we might learn about Isaac's um, or about Ishmael's son, but then it goes right back to Isaac and keeps on going. Um, and then, so yeah, even, yeah, we can see that again in chapter 12. It's interesting, or in chapter 2, sorry. Um, boy, that's not even true. Anyway, yeah, in chapter 2, we've got the 12 sons of Israel. It keeps going. And Judah's line, it's going to focus on Judah's line, not Reuben's line, because Judah is the one that ultimately ends with David. And so then chapters 4 through 8, we're continuing on with Jacob's sons. Um, and the point here is what happened to, to show that what happened to, know, to the north was because of their unfaithfulness. So in these lines, we see that they're continually ending. Um, and then there's a summary statement in chapter 9. It says, so all of Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. So that, and that phrase, um, all Israel is actually interesting because if you'll remember, I did say that Israel didn't end up coming back to the land, but the chronicler continually says all Israel, even though he doesn't talk about those northern tribes coming back. It's kind of when the southern tribes are coming back, there's something going on um, where it's all Israel coming back. There's some inclusiveness, even though the people physically never talks about coming back to the land. He only talks about Judah coming back to the land. So I think we can see... Um, kind of the all-encompassing nature that it's foreshadowing of what's going to occur. Um, so that's, yeah, the, chron- the chronology, and we see that it kind of yeah, moves along with a specific, pers- uh, specific purpose in mind. So then the next section, we've got um, chapter 10 through Second Chronicles chapter 9, and this is the hope of the community. So this is mostly just the united monarchy under David and Solomon. And then if you guys will flip over to chapter 17 of First Chronicles, in verse 11, we see the reason that David is so prominent in this book. It says, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So this is kind of the main promise that God is making to his people. He's saying, I will raise up a son after you, and my covenant will be with him forever. So there's a house both in the physical sense and in the figurative sense of this is the house of Israel. This is the house of the people. Um, And so I think, yeah, one of the main differences of Chronicles from something like Samuel and Kings is that Chronicles presents a vision of what the Messiah will be by highlighting all of the positive aspects of David and Solomon. So if Kings and um, Samuel kind of emphasize that these people are not the Messiah, like David is full of sin, Solomon is full of sin, these people are not the Messiah, Chronicles actually 
flips that and leaves out a lot of the negative stories about David and Solomon and focuses really a lot on the positive aspects of them, saying, like, the king is going to be something like this. The king is going to embody these positive aspects. So one of the most prominent examples, we'll flip over. Will somebody read in second, or first, well, yeah, I'll actually, somebody flip to second Samuel. We're just going to compare and contrast and read uh, chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. And then I'll read the same story in Chronicles. 1 and 2 of chapter 11 of Second Samuel. Yes, sorry. Okay, and so I think, yeah, we all know the rest of the story that um, David ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba, murders her husband, and it's kind of like this, everyone points to David as full of sin, like he uh, commits adultery um, and murder in the same time period. And so then we flip over to First Chronicles uh, chapter 20. And this is the same story. It even starts like the exact word for word the same way. So he's just copying um, Samuel here. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold, and in it was precious stones, and it was placed on David's head. And so that's the entire story of that whole scenario. It's just David gets the crown. He's king. It seems like he's just this um, awesome guy. So what, what's going on? Is this just like a whitewashing of history? Is this a guy like, eh, we're just going to um, yeah, forget about these bad things because it looks bad for us? Um, yeah, what do you guys think? I mean, is that like a legit thing to do as an author? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it just seems like a very big thing to leave out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's important to know, too, that the Chronicler didn't, he wasn't trying to also get rid of the book of Samuel. So he references it multiple times and is like, this is also written in the books of the Kings. And like, he notes his sources. So he's not, he's like, he's assuming that Israel already knows these books, that they've already read it, that they know the story. So he's not saying like, let's forget about this history. But he obviously is trying to portray David in this overwhelmingly positive light. Um, He's painting a picture of kind of the sort of king that I think the people should hope for. Um, And the same thing happens when we get to Solomon. And 1 Kings 11 is kind of this whole chapter talking about Solomon's um, sin of idolatry and how he gets all of these wives and how he starts going after their gods. Um, But that is just completely absent from Chronicles. There's nothing about it. All it talks about is Solomon's wisdom. Um, He has a story of the Queen of Sheba coming and paying homage to him and giving him spices and um, just blessing Solomon. And so, yeah, there's nothing about how Solomon at the end of his life kind of goes off the rails and goes and starts worshiping all these other gods. He just completely leaves that out. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think he's, he's really focusing on the good aspects of these kings in Israel, of Israel. Um, and I think, yeah, helping the people, what should we be looking for when we're looking for this Messiah? What is he going to embody? And I think he's going to embody the positive attributes of the king. So whether it's wisdom or whether it's wealth or riches or splendor, um, and obviously those things in Jesus end up becoming more figurative than the people would have thought. Um, even, and you can even get that a little bit. Like, why, why did nobody really think that Jesus um, was the God? And, I mean, we can get it after reading Chronicles and seeing how much they talk about Solomon's actual physical money and all of his, um, David's, like, war victories. And so if we think that this is kind of what we're looking for, then it would make sense why the Jews were like, wait, you're not winning any battles, you're not actually rich, you don't even own a house. Like, so, and I think we can now see that this was more of a spiritual kingdom than a physical kingdom when Jesus came. But um, reading Chronicles, I don't know that how many of us would have actually gotten that at the time. Um, so, second thing to note is unlike kings, Chronicles um, revolve um, around the temple of God. So in 1 Kings chapter 5, it says, Hiram, the king of Tyre, praises God for Solomon's wisdom. Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over his great people. Um, So he's talking about the wisdom of his son. And then in Chronicles, Hiram is quoted again, and it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. So, same sentence, but he adds that second phrase of the sentence. He adds the part of who will build the temple um, and a royal palace for himself. So, it seems like in Kings, the wisdom is mainly for ruling, um, ruling the people, but... The chronicler seems to say he has wisdom and is going to be building. So there's this focus on building the temple, um, and we know that that's the case, or why we can guess why that would be the case, because they were going to rebuild the temple at this time, and just the focus on rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city. The chronicler um, 
focus is on that. And I wouldn't say that it's really just to get the people to um, hope in the temple itself or in the building. Um, so even in Second Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon admits that God doesn't need a physical place to dwell. Um, all of it is kind of... Uh, if we think of the temple and what the main thing that needed to happen there was the sacrifices or the, um, yeah, the sacrifices and the repentance of sin. So this is where um, God's people could actually go to show that their heart had been changed, to show that they had repented, offer sacrifices to the Lord. This wasn't happening outside of the temple scenario. They weren't just sacrificing in their backyards. Um so they needed the temple for this to kind of be like this legit sacrifice of how it was supposed to be in the place and the form and everything was supposed to be just right. Um, so I think focusing on it, not just on the building aspect, but on what the building needed to be there for. And that was for them to sacrifice, to show their repentance. Um, in chapter 6 it says, If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name, and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. So this is, um, yeah, Solomon just asking God, with with this temple, please, if the people repent, hear them. Um, He's pleading for their forgiveness for the future, saying when they turn from you, if they repent, please hear them, um, please forgive them. And so this is kind of the approach that the returning exiles needed to take. They needed to take this approach of um, repentance and pleading to God for forgiveness. Um, So that's, yeah, David and Solomon. Then the last section is chapters 10 through 36, and this is, just going through much quicker than David and Solomon, all the rest of the kings of Judah. And we have examples of both rebellion and repentance. Um, So we give a record of the kings presenting the nation's descent into sin, the division of the two kingdoms, and then finally the exile. Um, And to kind of understand a little bit of the significance of this section, if you'll flip over to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, And will somebody read 13 through 15? So this is something that's added into Chronicles, and I think, yeah, one way to see what is the Chronicler trying to focus on is to see what he took, what he left out from Samuel and Kings, which he clearly got his history from, uh, and then what did he add. And so this is one of these things that's not in um, those other books and that he added. So Solomon's prayer in Kings highlights that the downfall of the nation is merely a working out of the curses as given in Deuteronomy uh, with a hope for God's mercy. 
But God's words here in this same corresponding section shows a focus on the plea for repentance. So in that sense, um, verse 14 here could really be like a theme verse for the whole book. Um, Yeah, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So this is kind of, I think, what the chronicler is focusing on. He really wants the people to repent, and he lists out the blessings that can be expected from repentance. Um, So, yeah, these chapters cover, chapters 10 through 36 cover 19 different kings, um, from Rehoboam all the way to Zedekiah, and all of them are evaluated based on how they live up to that verse. Was there a humbling of themselves? Was there a praying and a seeking of God's face? Um, So this, yeah, verse kind of, it establishes this concept that I think the chronicler wanted to communicate, and it's the idea of... Uh, immediate retribution. So if kings, if we're looking at um, kind of this far off retribution, so all these kings were sinning, but maybe it didn't focus on the immediate retribution for their sin, and it was a final retribution of the exile. So that happened after whatever, 500 years. Um, So the people could be thinking, well, that took a long time to build up for them. So we've got maybe another 500 years. So there's not this like immediate retribution to sin. Um, But if we read through Chronicles, it's interesting how he continually kind of fights against that mindset. So he's showing again and again the consequences that these kings experienced for their sin right then in their own generation. And then in the same likewise, when they repent, the chronicler... um, instructs them that God forgave their sin and healed their land in that generation. So it seems like he's focusing on this sort of immediate um, either blessings or curses based on what the kings were doing in this time. So, um, and then, yeah, and then, I mean, I guess, yeah, with anything, something like that could be... um, misapplied what's one what's one thing like if you just heard me say that theology that it could um be misapplied today or misinterpreted huh prayer in schools schools, how how so Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why why can't we apply it like that? So like there is some possible some truth in that, right? Because um like I think there is kind of in this very broad brush stroke there is kind of often how God does bless those who obey him and does assure for those who disobey him. But the big problem with that is that like we as a nation are not in covenant with God. Like we're really we're not in covenant with God at all. Right. 
Yeah, there's nothing, yeah, especially you read this and it's talking about healing their land and you think of like an increase in wealth or an increase in crops like that. Yeah, this does not, this is applying in a specific time to Israel, to the land that was there. Um, right, in a, yeah, in a complete, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a different covenant, a different people. Um, and, yeah, sadly, this is like people will read this and, yeah, just make a one to one correlation of like this, uh, of course, applies to this country um, in this exact same way. And, um, yeah, it gets taken out of context, I think, quite frequently. So, yeah, we have, we do have to know that, yeah, we are not in the same covenant. We are not God's chosen people as a nation, and this is not even, I don't know how you would think that this land was God's chosen land. Um, there would be absolutely zero to connect it to that. Um, so, yeah, this promise of healing their land does not apply to any place, any nation. Um, but the pattern, I think, of just wanting to continually repent and the blessing of repentance, even if that's just seeing yourself in God's will, is a blessing to the people who repent and a blessing to the people um, who want to be in Christ. And there's this continual repentance and a continual turning and seeking. It's not just this one-time thing, but it's a continual over and over again um, turning back, turning back to Christ and repenting. Um, so yeah, that we'll just look at a few examples. So in chapter 17, we've got King Jehoshaphat and, uh, he dispatches these teachers of God's word and it says, and they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people and the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the land that were around Judah and they made no war with Jehoshaphat. So we see this kind of, it, seems like the author's doing a one-to-one here. He said he kind of sent out these teachers of God's word, and there was no war among the people. There was no war against King Jehoshaphat. So there's this kind of immediacy of peace and blessing. Um, and then we have another good example of King Hezekiah. Near the end of, the li- end of his life, he does sin, but then it says, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done of him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. Then the very next verse, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So we see Hezekiah was proud. There was wrath upon him, he humbled himself, and then the wrath was not upon him. So there's, just seems to be, yeah, this chronicler is continually doing this immediate, the immediacy of this thing. So those are actually some of the rare good examples of a king humbling himself. If we continue on um, to kind of some of the bad examples is uh, chapter 12, we hear when the king, when the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because he had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. So because they had been unfaithful, Egypt comes up against them. Um, We've got another example, King Amaziah. 
It says, from the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lashik, but they sent after him to Lashik and put him to death. So, it's just kind of, it's this two sentences about one king, and that's all it is saying, is basically that he turned away from God, he fled, and they pursued him and killed him. Um, So we have a bunch of examples like these. Like I said, there's more negative than bad, or more negative than good. But if we kind of go to the end of the book, we'll look at um, chapter 36 of 2 Chronicles. And will somebody read um, 15 through 20? Yes. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man or virgin, old man. So that's the bad, and then by God's grace, that's not where it ends. In 22, he says, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, just a verse later, the king of Persia, the, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So, um, Cyrus, yeah, frees the people. They go and they rebuild the temple. Um, but there's still this, there's still this um, thought of this, Um, blessings and curses and they are still under the old covenant and we learn quickly that these people's hearts are not really different than the original Israelites they didn't they may repent for a little bit but all in all there's no um, difference so that leaves the question is there no hope Um, and I think that there is and we see that because um the genealogies show that David's seed is still alive. So there's still something to grasp onto. The seed is still continuing. It has not ended yet. Um, There's this focus in this book on the temple, and it continually reminds the people that God will build his house 
um, and think of that house as family, and think about it as people. Um, it says in chapter 21, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So we have this promise. It is continuing on, um, and it's going to lead us directly to Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of these promises, that Jesus is the one who rescues his people. He is the promised son of David, and he ends up being the true temple, as we learn in the Gospels. Um, so the end of the Chronicles is not a question mark. It's this giant arrow pointing to Jesus, pointing to the King of Kings, to the temple, to all of these kind of um, physical things in the book of Chronicles. We see that Jesus takes on that role in a spiritual sense in the Gospels and that he is the fulfillment of all of these. Um, all right, so with that, let me close in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your continued grace towards your people, even when they and we continue to turn away from you. Um, We pray that we might have a heart of repentance that is continual, that we would not um, pursue sin, Lord, but we would pursue you. We thank you for your spirit, which enables us to do that. Um, God, we are grateful for your promises, and we pray that we could um, know and believe them in a way that is life-changing for us. In your son's name we pray, amen.